All right, folks, back here in Juneau with uh, my good buddy, Dr. Ann Zink. How you doing? I'm good. How about you? Good. Welcome back. Second second uh, landmine radio appearance. First one in Juneau. Yep, absolutely. First one in Juneau. Good to be down here. You've, you've got a very uh, quick access to the Capitol. It's good to have quick access to the Capitol. Yep, absolutely. I think it's important to say that you told me you were in the fifth <laughs> floor of the state office building, which this is not the state office building. So I was over there walking around and there was like IT stuff and there was like all these uh, uh, safe and some weird vault and a note, don't, do not enter. And I was like, what am I doing? Where am I? And then I called you. And then this is, I think, the administrative office building. This is the administrative office building. Sorry about that. I got my steps in. I'm glad you, I'm looking out for your health. I also want to just say today, uh, it's kind of a coincidence, you were in the Capitol giving a presentation. There was uh, a group of EMS people doing kind of vital sign checks. Yep. Now, I showed you my, let me pull this out here. Yeah, you got a good one. I've, I've in the past, history of high blood pressure in the family. Mm-hmm. I'll always worry about that. So resting heart rate 69, blood pressure 128 over 78. So that's not bad, right? No, that's good. Didn't they just lower or raise that? Wait, lower, 120 over 80. <laughs> so they're constantly kind of adjusting and changing that. But I saw you taking your steps and you're drinking your water right now. So you're, you're making good choices. And my coffee. And your coffee. I, I chose not to mention that. And you got your flu shot. Yeah. So that actually, I'm telling you what, I, several people told me they got a flu shot after that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That so, made my day. <laughs> so if the listeners don't know, last time we did this, I, I said, I'm not anti-vax, but I never got the flu shot because my dad got sick when I was a kid. So I had this irrational kind of fear of equating the flu shot to getting sick. And, and you kind of said, hey, that's wrong. And then you shamed me for not getting the flu shot. <laughs> so we met at the the public health building. Yeah. The Muni building in Anchorage there. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not above shaming to get health uh, and make people healthy. Yeah, it's uh, kind of fascinating. I was actually looking at some data. So just in the 2017 to 18th season, there were 45 million flu cases and 61,000 flu deaths. And if you look at about 40% of the U.S. population got the flu vaccine. Wait, that's just in the U.S.? Just, just in the U.S. Wait, for, that's like, we only have 320 million people. Yeah. That's more than 10%. Yeah. I, 45 million. That's what it says. CDC says during the 2017-18 season, CDC estimates flu causes. You know what? Uh, it doesn't say specifically on here on the U.S., but they do say, but this is they usually only present U.S. data. They say, according to CDC, 45 million flu cases uh, 810,000 flu hospitalizations, 61,000 flu deaths. Wow. This severe flu season could have been worse without the flu vaccine. Approximately 40% of the U.S. population chose to get a flu vaccine during the 2017-2018 flu season, and this prevented an estimated 6.2 million flu illnesses, 91,000 hospitalizations, and 5,700 deaths. I wonder I wonder how many, do they know... Estimate how many people, what percentage of the population gets the flu shot? Or So according to this, they said 40% of the U.S. population chose to get a flu vaccine in the 2017 pretty, to 2018 year. Pretty low. Pretty low. I mean, think about what we could do if we could get that higher. We can't get to 100%. There's certain people who can't get the flu vaccine, but... Um, who can't get it? So if you're immunocompromised for certain reasons, you can't get it. If you've had a severe allergic reaction in the past, uh, very young, can't get it. There's a couple, couple groups. So this kind of goes into the, the the main topic of this podcast is the coronavirus yeah. um, situation. I have to say that I love doing podcasts with you, but every time I do one, there's like a homework assignment associated with it. That's right. Th- this time I had to go and uh, watch or listen to an interview you did with uh, Dr. Jay Butler, yeah. your, form- your former predecessor, right? 
Yeah, so Dr. Jay Butler was the former CEO, uh, or excuse me, CMO of Alaska, and now he is the Deputy Director of Infectious Disease at the CDC. So he is fully in the midst of so this that, right now. That's a pretty good tag team, you and him, to talk about coronavirus. Yeah, it was great. He's it, not only to talk about it, but to deal with it. He's been a fantastic resource over the past couple of weeks. And CMO, so just for clear, chief, you're the Chief Medical Officer. Correct, Chief Medical for Officer. For the state of Alaska. So uh, I, I guess the coronavirus, I mean, it's been news everywhere for a while, but it really kind of hit home um, a week or two ago when the, the plane from China came and landed here at the Anchorage, well, in Anchorage at the airport to refuel. And there, there was quite a bit of maybe some, some worry and some concern by, by folks. And I want to talk a little bit about that and then generally the, about the virus itself and what it is and, um, you know, what's going on. So, so the plane landed here. It was a refueling situation, right? That's correct. Because we're so, so far from, they, they, I guess they, leased or they chartered a plane yeah so it was a chartered plane it was a plane that had been retrofitted actually for ebola so they were cargo planes uh, that they end up kind of sliding seats into where the the crew and the pilot are completely kept separate in a completely separate air container in the top so these were american citizens who were in in, were they in wuhan or they were in wuhan Mm -hmm. so i mean i I guess the public right away you hear that and you everybody starts thinking like oh my god outbreak movie Mm -hmm. but um talk a little bit about you know in the previous uh, radio episode I listened to, uh, the North Terminal, most of us know, is not really used much, uh, yeah. only in the summer. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Only in the summer. According to our airport colleagues, there was no scheduled passengers to go through there until uh, mid-May. When you heard about this, I mean, is this something we were were prepared to handle? Or was there like a, what, what did you have to do to, to be able to, I did a podcast with Commissioner Crum, we talked a little bit about this. Yeah, so we, and I, I did listen to that podcast, we got ready for it. We were asked if we could do this. We really shared with our national partners, numerous national partners, really what was it, the capability and capacity within Alaska. We wanted to make sure that they understood what our hospitals could do, what we could and couldn't take, what re- resources that we had within the state. And we worked closely with them to understand what the passengers needed, what the capacity was, and, and just worked incredibly close with them in the couple days preparing for this and actually through the, through the mission itself. So going back, I guess, and, and I've read a little bit about this, I wouldn't say, I mean, a lot, but there was a doctor that kind of identified this. And then I, I, I understand maybe they were like, oh, it's not a big deal at first, but he kind of, he, he died, right? Uh, so in the news and in the media and social media, there's a lot of talk about the physician who kind of raised an awareness to it. Uh, sounds like, I think he was an ophthalmologist, uh, passed away. I, I don't know the details of that. Um, Something that's been really interesting in this role is when you're getting the actual data in, you're seeing what's in the media, you realize sometimes there's a disconnect between the two. Oh, yeah, so. that's <laughs> true on the local, national, and international level all the time, especially yeah. the local. You know, sometimes you see something in the media and then I, I like say, wait a minute, that's not exact. That's not at all what happened. So I don't, I don't have the details on that. I don't have any way to kind of confirm that. I have seen it in the media, but um, somewhere in mid-December-ish, we started to hear about and see cases. On uh, December 31st, uh, the Chinese government said that they had what looked like a novel or new coronavirus uh, that was potentially causing disease and a disease outbreak in Wuhan City. So the coronavirus, that's actually the first time I've heard that term, but um, that's actually, you said the same as the common cold, right? That's a coronavirus? So in general, we used to think of coronaviruses as viruses that really affect animals, but there are coronaviruses that circulate amongst the human population. There's four com- common coronaviruses that circulate all the time through the human population and cause probably 10 to 30% of the common cold. So we've always thought of it as kind of this um, virus that doesn't really cause that much illness until SARS and MERS came about. So SARS and MERS were two new coronaviruses that probably came from what we call zoonotic or animal populations. 
and came in to the human population and caused significant death. So the SARS coronavirus caused approximately about 9% fatality, and the MERS coronavirus caused about 35% mortality. The MERS was the, yeah, that was the bad one, right? Yeah, so really high mortality rate so, with that. So how do these passed to humans like eating or just being around animals or and it's a fascinating question full of mystery and and lots of conversations so is it eating animals is it being closer in the ecosystem is it changing an environment is it that they have an intermediary host so there's thought that these coronaviruses may be originating bats and they may go to an intermediary host like a civet cat or a dromedary camel and then that virus then can translate it and spread it to humans we see the same thing in influenza and other viruses particularly in hosts that can take something like an animal so example a pig is a good example of that um, can be susceptible to a bird flu as well as a human flu and then those viruses can mix and it can change and then that virus is more susceptible to to potentially damaging either maybe a, population. maybe a dumb question is mad cow a coronavirus or is no, that a whole different thing totally okay. different thing yeah all right wasn't sure no worries good um, question. <laughs> so when these things like happen SARS or Mert, you hear about them and I, I recall when that happened but I mean, or the Spanish flu or any of these big, big epidemics or pandemics. Um, I mean, what happens? They just eventually run their course or I mean, but they're still around, right? I mean, they still exist somewhere in the, in the world. So in general, it's kind of like when you got your flu shot. Basically, when you got your flu shot, you got little bits of what we thought was the most likely circulating influenza out there. And we sh- we gave you a little bit of that and your body said, okay, this is, this is a concern. I've got to build up antibodies and I've got to be able to fight this. So therefore, if you're exposed to the flu, your body's kind of primed and ready to go. So in general, like with the 1918 flu, that was likely a new virus that entered the population. It was right after World War I. There was lots of movement of pe- people from all sorts of different communities that we hadn't had before. And this flu virus took over and uh, really um, killed a lot of people and, and caused a, a large pandemic. What happens then is that other people get mild symptoms and they develop antibodies and they share those antibodies. So as that continues to circulate, it doesn't have the same effect because now people are kind of all primed for that disease and the, the mortality goes down. Does what was sense? the plague? What was that? The so plague is totally different, um, and depending on what you call the plague, the, the bubo- uh, I guess the bubonic plague, the bubonic plague, medieval times that was not caused by a coronavirus. Um, and so, yeah, we have throughout history seen these infectious diseases that come up and then kind of die down, particularly as we develop an immune system. And we see that when we have lots of travel, when we have one population suddenly mixing with a new population, war, all good examples of when we have sudden movement. And we're seeing that with the coronavirus now. So we're seeing the fact that we live in an incredibly international world with people flying back and forth mm-hmm. and cargo moving back and forth and people moving back and forth that you can uh, have a new virus start in one place like in this case Wuhan city and quickly spread across the world so when um when a person is infected in some place like let's say Wuhan if if they you know maybe they're asymptomatic at first and then they end up going to I don't know Delhi or somewhere in Bangladesh a very highly dense population and then somebody else I mean is that pretty much is that when it can really like take off? Is that kind of how that works? So, yeah, when you listen to the WHO's concern about why they declared it a a public health emergency, that was the concern, that because we are seeing person-to-person transmission, so someone is sick and they give it to someone else, this is thought to have a person-to-person transmission of about 2.5, or we call an R-naught value of 2.5. So if I was infected by the coronavirus, on average for a population, I would infect two and a half people. Most of the people who get coronavirus have fair. This specific novel coronavirus have fairly mild symptoms. You you would if you had you would infect two and a half people. I would try not to, but, but, but on I'm saying a person average, that's, wow. yeah, on average. So that's like exponential when you start when if you give it, then it goes two, and then it's like it. 
and it goes and goes and goes. And to put that in context, so the measles, um, so that R not value is greater than 12. So if one person has the measles, on average, they'll affect 12 oh, so people. That's, so two and a half is so less than compa- measles, right? Uh, SARS was about three. The uh, 1918 influenza pandemic was about two. And the 2009 H1N1 was about one and a half. And seasonal flu is about 1.2. So it just gives you a sense of like how many people in general effect. And this new coronavirus is about two and a half. So something that a friend asked me and that I asked you about, and then I heard actually the question on the on the radio program um, on Talk of Alaska. So there's concern about um, specifically native Alaska populations mm-hmm. because maybe they don't have the kind of immunity. Um, and I guess they were very affected by the Span- Spanish flu, right? So the influenza outbreak of 1918 definitely did affect certain rural populations in Alaska and certain native populations uh, to a great degree. We also saw with the H1N1 influenza epidemic that certain populations uh, were more affected and the CDC guidelines for who you treat with an antiviral medication are more liberal towards the native population because we see some genetic variants in the ways that people's body responds to the influenza virus itself. We don't have that data for coronavirus. So when we look back on other coronaviruses, we don't have enough data to say that that's true or not true for the native population or any specific population, but we continue to follow that closely. So this has to do with um, indigenous folks have only had contact with European folks for hundreds or is that related to that where people came over and... We it's a different history. We don't know. Of- I mean, that's a potential. So definitely when you've had a population that's been isolated from other populations, they are at higher risk for having those diseases kind of spread. So again, like with the 1918 pandemic, suddenly we had the war, people were moving, being congregated into dense communities, not having what we call social uh, distancing, so keeping at least six feet from each other. Mm-hmm. So suddenly people were in large tents, moving around, so viruses could spread in a way that they hadn't before. And is it that, or is it um, more that certain autoimmune uh, systems change and, and um, people respond to viruses differently. So we see this with other infections and immune systems. Sometimes kids, sometimes certain populations, their body can kind of over-respond to an infection and they become very, very sick from that over-response. So, I mean, do some people have just a natural, I mean, I remember I read, I read that like Ebola, some, some, there was a person who just, you know, w- couldn't, wouldn't get it or it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, affect them. And they don't, they don't know why, but this, you know, everybody in the village got it, but they didn't get it. And, So as viruses change and regulate how people respond to it, and if they're able to create antibodies without getting super sick, uh, is also something we see. So Ebola had about 65% mortality, but that also meant that 35% of the people didn't get it. And so did some people get some more mild disease and then develop antibodies? And then that was the person walking through the town who was then unable to get it because they had those antibodies. It's a little hard to say. Do you you know what the Ebola factor was, the the 2.5? I don't know what the Ebola factor is, but that's a good question. I'll put it on my slides. So, so going back to the um, airplane, what was kind of the preparation, and then what was the, I guess, you know, kind of worse, like if some somebody got infected, like what 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 was in the contingency, I guess, in place for that? Yeah. So the preparation was extensive, and that could be a couple hour long podcast in and of itself. But in general, I got I got all night. You got all night. I don't, but <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the fact you do. Um, in general. The way that we work um, within the Department of Health and Social Services, and and this is true for most disaster planning, is that we look to our local, our tribal, our state, and our federal partners and try to figure out what capacity and capability do they have and how do we need to support each other. So we knew this plane was coming in. It was going to land in Anchorage, and so we were really looking at our Anchorage response. And so we stood up what we call our EOC, our Emergency Operations Center, so that we can make sure all of those players were at the table and we could run through all sorts of different scenarios together and make sure everyone was on the same page and talking the same language. So we stood that up. We ran through a whole bunch of different scenarios of what that looked like. We worked really closely with our federal partners to understand what was happening before, during, and after. 
Um, these were U.S. citizens who were returning to the United States, many of them who were working for the U.S. government and needing to return home. They were screened by the Chinese government prior to being able to enter onto the plane. They were screened by the U.S. government prior to getting on the plane. So can they, can they uh, is there a test, test for it? or? So they were screening based on symptoms and temperature. Um, is how they were doing. There is a test for the novel coronavirus. It doesn't come back that quickly. And we don't fully know what's called the sensitivity and specificity of it. We don't know how 100% it is. And and it hasn't been used in the case of an asymptomatic person to say, can you really rule it out or not? Um, It's being used in in people who are symptomatic to see, is this flu? Is this coronavirus? What's going on here? Um, So they were screened with temperature and with additional questions from the Chinese government. Same thing with the US government. They had temperature screening and series of questions. Uh, Those who made it through both of those two screenings were allowed to board the plane. They traveled with two medics in route. We got regular updated reports in route to make sure that no one was changing their signs and symptoms. And they had a procedure in place for the plane where they could actually move people to the back of the plane if they developed a fever or were starting to not feel well and the way that the airflow moved through the plane that would help in that process. So we were receiving regular updates. They landed. Uh, there's been a bunch of questions about why they got off of the plane. A couple different things. Yeah, that's one of the things I was going to ask because some people were like, you know, why are they getting off? Yeah, and we had the same question (laughs) and said, well, if this is just a, quote, gas and go, which is kind of a military term, which is gas and go. um, A couple things. One, it was more dangerous to the passengers uh, because you'd either have to fully turn off the plane uh, so that you could gas it. And this is a cargo ship that isn't well insulated. These are mainly family units, so mainly families who have been on a nine and a half hour flight. I was going to say, I've flown, you know, Australia and Russia, I mean... You, you want off. You want off. And these are kids and moms and dads who have been in a city that's been locked down, who have been on a nine and a half hour plane and now, you know, would potentially be asked to sit on a cargo plane that's not super insulated in Alaska in the winter um, and asked to sit there. And so we had to weigh the risk benefit of what that looked like um, versus could we safely deplane them and be able to allow them to eat and to drink and to get back on the plane. And so we had all these conversations with the CDC, our federal partners at length of what that looked like. It also, um, the medics who traveled with them were in full hazmat kind of like suits because we didn't, they were going to be in a tight confined space with the passengers. Um, they couldn't like literally take those off to pee the whole route. So they had to deplane just like. I was, I was going <laughs> to ask, did, were the people who interacted with them wearing like the Ebola suit, you know, the thing you see in. So the two, the medics who traveled on the plane were in full suits like that. Um, and partially because they were in closed airspace with them on a plane for many hours. Did you go to the airport? I was at the airport. So I was, were, you, were you wearing the full regal- no. regalia thing? No, I that wasn't. Must, that must be like, A, really hot. Yes. And B, just really, like if you have any kind of claustrophobia, because you can't really, I mean, if you have an itch or something, you can't really do can't anything, right? Yeah, so these medics flew with them in those suits, unable to take them off to pee, to drink, oh my to eat God. the whole time. So we needed to let them off to appropriately get their gowns off in a safe hazard-proof way to let them eat, drink before they got back on the plane to continue on. And the north terminal of the airport is not used by passengers. It has good airflow, and we felt like we were able to do it in a safe and secure manner to be able to screen the people. The other thing is it allowed the CDC to better assess the histories um, as well as the passengers to better make preparations for them when they got... 
to um, California. So you, you interacted with um, any of those folks or you were just kind of on, on the scene? So I was not directly back with the, those folks. So we had uh, some people from the state. We had federal partners, CDC, who were back there and some people from the Muni. So we had a team uh, that was all back there. We really tried to minimize the number of people back there in general. And we specifically tried to minimize the number of Alaskans. My role was really kind of the spokesperson and then kind of overseeing some of the operations. I was not the chief of the operations. She was in our EOC center and we had our uh, chief federal liaison our CDC quarantine officer, myself, a couple of the people at EMS were all at the airport outside of that zone helping to support them. I'm just going to ask you, how many um, how many acronyms do you think you use a day? I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm doing really well on my acronyms. <laughs> I, it's a great question. I had all my medical acronyms and now I have to work all these federal and state acronyms. So I have been on a large... A Acronym accumulation. A lot of acronyms. A lot of acronyms. Sorry if I'm no, no, talking I, I, I know mo- I know most of them. Okay, please try um, to clarify if I'm not. So I guess the follow-up question is, Is when was the last time, I guess probably the Spanish flu, I'm, I'm assuming the last really big, what's the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic? Another, another probably dumb question. but uh, Not a dumb question at all. So pandemic is something that's kind of influencing the whole world and an epidemic is more in a localized okay. area. So when was the last time we had something like that? And then what, what do... If something like that does happen, what do we what do we do? I mean, what do we do on the local level, on the state level, on the on the federal level? I mean, I guess in China it's probably they're they're probably a little better at maybe locking things down. Where here it's like people are you know it's my freedom. You know, you're not gonna no court no you know quarantine or no martial law or what's it called um, curfew. No curfew. Yeah. Um, so great questions. A couple different things. I, I think that what. What would we do if it got worse? A couple different things. We have a pandemic flu plan that the CDC has, that the state has, that we practice on a regular basis. I have it right here. We review it this, on... This, this book is... Folks, this, right, sorry, this book is something book. else. There's, there's a lot of information in there. I should take a look at that one day. This is my coronavirus book. Um, and so we have a pandemic influenza plan that we write and we work in coordination with our partners and to look at, okay, if we had a big pandemic, what would this look like? We've based it in the past based on influenza because that was the most likely virus, but most of this crosses over to coronavirus. So there's a lot of similarities between this. So we have that in place. We work across departments. We've been working with our departments on a regular basis. We've been working with a Department of Education, Department of Corrections, Department of Public Safety, the Military and Veterans Affairs, the Governor's Office, all all of these different departments we are working with um, usually daily at this point to making sure that they've got the resources that they need, that we understand the health concerns, uh, and that, that we are all working together not only to respond currently to what we're calling our four pandemics or four epidemics. One is the coronavirus, and then the three other ones of the epidemic of stigma, fear, and misinformation. So we're really trying to address I mean, that, all that, four of those. That probably causes in some ways more problems than the, because what, what are the odds of this happening? Probably not very high, but in the meantime, this thing happens and then the public starts to get very, you know, for not bad reasons, nervous, what, mm-hmm. you know, and then you have to start dealing with all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's almost worse because at that point there's no problem. It's just the problem of information. And even if this becomes uh, a big threat to Alaska or to the United States, fear is not usually a healthy way to respond to a challenge. So as you know, I'm an emergency medicine physician by training. And my training before this was a mountaineering guide. And uh, I worked for Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School. And when I worked there, they always said, if there's a crisis, the first thing you do is, uh, at that time, they said, stop and smoke a cigarette. I would say, stop and take a deep breath. Like, (laughs) I don't think that was the best health advice. Is that your your advice right now for the listeners? No, mine is stop and take a deep breath. Um, 
But I think stopping and taking a deep breath and thinking about how you're going to respond is critical. Before I do a big procedure in the emergency department, before we helped assist with this uh, plane landing, stopping, pausing, and saying what makes sense uh, is critically important. And so addressing misinformation, fear, and stigma aren't only important to minimize the impact to the government, to schools, to kids, to all these other aspects, but it's also going to be really important if we do have cases in Alaska. So so I guess, and, and I'm just curious um how would it look i mean if something really spanish flu type thing happened like now, nowadays like everybody moves so fast it's you know you can get anywhere in the world in a day or two mm-hmm. um how would it look if, if something like that happened i mean would it just be stay home and you know kind of curfew or maybe don't you know or would it be more just trying to deal deal with deal with the virus itself i mean how would that look i guess so there's a lot of science fiction books written on that topic, right, right, uh, yeah. a lot of different ways to, to kind of play out different scenarios on and what that would look like. What we have seen in more modern times, like with the H1N1, certain populations were more affected than others, certain areas were more affected than others. I think for many people, H1N1 was like a bump in their memory. And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember something about that. And there was a lot. I was a resident at the end of uh, my training of, of emergency medicine at the time. And it was pretty profound watching just this sudden increase of a whole bunch of patients. Our residency class almost had to cancel their graduation because we didn't have enough staff. Staff were getting sick. We had to transfer people out of Utah to Colorado so they could get their neuro care so we could admit more people with respiratory care. I mean, it definitely stretched to the hospital system. Beyond, and for other people, they didn't even notice that anything really kind of passed through. So I think it would really depend on how widespread it was, what the mortality ends up looking like. Um, Part of the reason we do all this planning and preparing, um, when you see a normal pandemic uh, graph, what happens is you get this really steep incline and a lot of people affected, and then it comes down and Again, I know that we're on radio, but I have pictures if you want to see them. But if we were able to have a good pandemic response, what happens is we soften out that curve a little bit, uh, and then it becomes not so blunt, and we're not affecting as many people, and we don't put such a strain on the hospital systems. And so that's really our goal as of right now. So, so at, at some point, I mean, even you know, in a, in a very uh, you know deadly type, at some point it will, no matter what, it, it will kind of, I guess, work itself out, right? Or it'll, it'll affect what's going to affect. And then it'll, it'll, I mean, if, if it's going to be bad, it's bad, but I mean, it's not going to affect everybody in the world and it'll, it'll have to at some point kind of stop, right? Or burn itself out. Burn it, yeah, exactly. Well, I guess that's probably yeah, a term. Yeah. So I it, use. Yeah. I mean, if it's got a 2% mortality rate and every single person in the world is affected by it, and that's truly true, 2% of the world would be affected by it. Um, what we've seen with other viruses and pandemics is that we don't see a full spread to everyone in the world, that it tends to be isolated in certain populations. It takes a while to move from place to place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the likely would be the same thing here. You know, we have 13 cases in the United States. It's not like we don't have any, but I think that the work that the CDC is doing and the state is doing has been, um, is really important work that's happening right now and is is really important in helping to kind of blunt the force of of this virus. So in this case, you know, we kind of know this. I think, I guess we know the source of Wuhan. The, 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 where that's where we see the first cases start, yeah. So, but when you have something that you don't, maybe don't know and it starts to spread, I mean, remember that movie, Out- I don't know if that's right. true, but they <laughs> were like, who, you know, they trace back these people, where'd they come from? Is that kind of... So that's what we do in the department all day long. So um, so say the case in Washington State, which was the first case. What the department there is doing is they look at that one case and they track back all the additional people. And it's like a whole investigation novel and try to figure out who else they saw and where else they came from and who else was on the plane and who's considered a close contact and not. 
And then those are people who are what we call PUIs or persons under investigation. So anyone who's had a close contact with someone who has a, that has the known coron- novel coronavirus is considered a person under investigation and we monitor them or we investigate them depending if they have signs or symptoms. And so um, all throughout the country right now, there are huge teams of epidemiologists and public health nurses and all sorts of other teams kind of tracking all those connections, looking at their at their travel, where else they've been, and, and making sure that everyone who's connected is protected. So so where were the 13? I, I know there was 13, but were they in one, one state or were they different no, states? No, so six states uh, as of right now. Um, the 13th just was uh, announced later today. Um, actually, the majority are in California, but... Uh, so we've got Washington, California, Arizona, Wisconsin, um, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and Illinois. Has anybody uh, died or no? So one U.S. citizen has died, but this was a citizen in Wuhan City itself. No, nobody in the United States has died from this novel coronavirus as of right now. So if if um, if, if something were to happen like this, what would, where would folks? I mean, obviously the media would probably be the main place. I mean, or the the your website. Like where would people go to get? The good information. I think the best information is the CDC. They have honestly, I've been amazed watching that website transform on a day-to-day basis. But it's getting so many hits right now. It gets a lot of hits. I mean, I hit it four or five times a day at least. Um, I'm constantly re-downloading things and seeing what else is on there. It's been impressive. They have had calls with us almost every day, if not every day, sometimes a couple calls a day. And they have big national media calls. And then they have small calls with the state health officials. And then they have calls with the labs. And they have calls with the epidemiologists. They have calls at all sorts of different levels to make sure that we're really all hearing the same information, that we can ask each other questions and say, this is what I'm seeing. How do I deal with this? This isn't working. Help us fix that. And then what we're seeing is really almost in real time, the websites are being updated. We say, I don't know how to deal with this. Or what would I do in this case? And you see changes within the website. I recall in the past, there's been you know debates about CDC funding, and yeah. I have a feeling those might <laughs> cool off for a while. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, the CDC is impressive. The work that they've been able to do and the information that they're able to get out in real time, to see journal articles being able to be published, analyzed, figured out, to see the fact that just as the world works in a very integrated way right now and this virus doesn't have a passport and can spread anywhere – Science and data also doesn't have a passport and can spread anywhere. So China uploaded this viral sequence to this thing called yes. GeneBank. Didn't they map it and like the ge- yeah? So I was going to ask you about that. One, how difficult is that to do? And then, and then two, what, what does that actually? What does that do? How does that help? So what it did is it mapped out the actual genetic sequencing of this virus. And so they mapped it out and said, here's kind of the genetic footprint for this for this virus, and here it is, world. So when they were able to see it, then other countries and communities were able to say, okay, can we develop a test for this? How else would we look for this? And so like then the U.S. was able to develop a test for it to say, okay, if we see this, this is what we're looking for. And now all these other countries are also uploading their sequences. And it's really fascinating. You can see like these trees of how the virus has changed or hasn't changed because viruses actually mutate and change quite quickly. And so we can get a sense of how recently did it come from a zoonotic population? Where are these people coming from? How much has changed? We see very little genetic variation. So it looks like this recently emerged from an animal population. And then there's this kind of free flow of data between all these different countries. The- so is it, I mean, it must be just very difficult to map that. Must take a computing power or maybe I don't even how it's a you- PCR. So it's a polymerase chain reaction. So they basically um, break apart the DNA. It's this pipetting. I keep using my thumb because you 
do this with your thumb a lot when you're individually doing <laughs> these little micro pipettes. So it's a it's a series of chemical reactions with pieces of the virus that mark the little parts of the DNA. And how long have we been able to, to do that? I mean, dec- years or decades or? Uh, I did PCR genetic testing prior to med school. But but actually map I'm talking about actually mapping like, like doing the mapping of the gen- genome and what yeah. the Chinese did that that part. Well, see, the, see, this is where you're testing me on what I learned in med school. It but must then be hard to do, I'm assuming. Since forgotten. Um, uh, I, I mean, we've gotten much better at it. We do it all the time for all sorts of different genetic markers. I don't know exactly when we were able to start to do PCR. And what we've really seen is just this huge um, expanded uh, use of DNA testing and everything from crime to the way that we look at viruses to... That's a to, whole different podcast. That's a whole different I, I listened podcast. to one about how these, you know, 23 and whatever... I forget what the name of it, but they were able to, one, it wasn't that one, but it was another one where they shared all the stuff with the local authorities and mm-hmm. there was an unsolved, you know, murder 30 years ago in, in Washington state and this couple was killed. They found, you know, the bodies were found miles apart, but never found the person yeah. and they, they tested the, the DNA they had and they were able to find two second cousins on each side and they traced it back to the guy who lived like a mile from, it's like crazy. Yeah. It's like wild they can do that. It is impressive and it's been impressive to see with this outbreak how much you can see the scientific community working together with the shared data information. Uh, And the WHO is on the ground now in China sharing information. And so the CDC is analyzing that. The CDC said the other day they had over 800 people working specifically on this um, right now. And then all the states and local authorities are working on it. So yeah, it's kind of like a big investigation like the crime that you talked about. So your your, uh, job right now, how much are you spending on this thing compared to other stuff? Is it a lot or is it not that much now? Because the plane's Uh, gone. uh, mm, uh, Yeah. Uh, Most of my life right now is... um, it's become a verb, become coroned. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a huge issue. I kind of was hoping the plane uh, would, would come and then go and it would all be good. But the reality is we did not stop a world pandemic by refueling one plane. Um, we were able to safely refuel that plane. And the passengers who were on that plane just cleared their 14-day quarantine, which was great. So it means that all those passengers completely thought to be disease-free and are returning back to their homes, which also means that anyone in Alaska who interacted with them are also completely, they were considered low mm-hmm. risk beforehand, but are completely in in the clear as so, of now. So this is why you're in Juneau, I assume, for, for the legislate, legislative presentation, or is it other stuff too? Um, Why am I here? I am here for all of the things that DHSS does. So for, the pod, for the podcast. For the podcast. I came for you, Jeff. Exactly. So um, excited. So excited. I'm here. And well, you found me. Um, Yeah, I'm here. I mean, public health is also doing all sorts of stuff. So you know, we're talking about the amazing work that our public health nurses do. They are the ones who are going out to the houses and checking on people. And they are the ones who are kind of doing all this work, our section of epidemiology. And we're talking about budgets and the rest of that and making sure these things are funded. Um, that podcast that I did with uh, Jay Butler, I, I didn't know this, but he was talking, the economist was on there and talking about $1 that you spend in preparation and prevention for these disaster oh, outbreaks. Probably saves... Yeah, I said it'd save ten dollars, mm-hmm. and I can totally see it and understand it working. It the the work that our team has been doing over the last two weeks has been phenomenal. We've been on the phone till three o'clock in the morning and up again early in the next morning, um, working on getting out information and reports to the school administrators and responding to media requests and 
investigating certain cases and making sure we're up to date. It's It's been a pretty impressive um, team effort over the past couple of weeks. Well, I want to thank you. It's a great podcast, great discussion. You started what, in summer, right? So Yeah, I started July. So you're what, about uh, seven, eight months into it? Yeah. How, how, how are you liking it? Uh, I'm liking it. It's, um, you know, it's a real honor and opportunity to be learning so much every day and to really be asked to promote the health and well-being of Alaskan today and tomorrow. I mean, I really couldn't think of a more... Um, a gracious job and, a, and a, a greater honor than to have this role. I take it incredibly seriously. I think about each and every patient I see. I think about each and every person I see mm-hmm. when that plane landed to hear the stories of trying to get off that plane and to get home and what that looked like. At the end of the day, it's really the patients that are my true north um, and it's the people of Alaska that are my true north. And so it's it's an honor to serve them. Do you miss the traveling at all? I know you did a year of uh, 13 <laughs> countries with your family, right? Yeah, I mean, I... Traveling so much fun, but then you come back and you miss it, but then you're also just, you're like, I'm glad I'm home. The intellectual stimulation and the honor of this job has been phenomenal. I haven't seen my kids as much. I miss them. I was going to say, I bet <laughs> you you're, you're inundated right now. Yeah, it's it's been a lot, but again, it's an honor and it feels like a calling and something that I need to be doing. And it's it, this opportunity came up and it wasn't something that I really could say no to. And I am blessed with an amazing husband and two sweet girls who, um, you know, are independent and strong and are doing awesome. How old are they? They're 15 and 11. Oh, so they're right in the kind of the teenage year. Well, almost teenage for the they are. year old. Yeah, no, and they, you know, even with this corona thing, they took some hits, you know, some people definitely gave them a lot of criticism for the fact that we were involved in letting the plane land. And it made me just realize how much stigma and misinformation. What is your mom doing? You know? Exactly. Because you were on TV, right? There was, was on a I, lot of TV. I, I sent you the picture. Remember, I, I saw you on Channel 2 and I was like, yeah. oh my God, you're famous. <laughs> uh, yeah, that picture got around. I was getting uh, emails from all around the world. But um at the end of the day, you know, I feel like we were doing the right thing for Alaska, and I feel like Alaska is safer for having the courage to stand up to that mission. I mean, we really tested our system to make sure EMS, the hospitals, all the different parts were ready to go. And I feel like we are light years ahead of most of the other states right now in being prepared if this really becomes a big deal in the United States because we had the courage to stand up for the mission. Well, that's good to hear. I know you've been busy. I want to thank you for doing doing the podcast. We'll we'll do another one. You're one of my favorite people to do a <laughs> podcast with. You're, you're very fun to talk to. Always you fun to talk to you as well. Have a, have a lot of information. So again, if um, folks want to get information, CDC is kind of the CDC and then the Department of Health and Social Services also has a specific coronavirus. Uh, you can just go to our main DHSS website and you'll see it right on the top. We also are using social media, so you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook, and we post posts all the time on there uh, to try to make sure that oh, people great. are aware and informed. You're you're, uh, you're you're up to speed on the social media. Yeah, my PIO team is up to speed I was on the say, social are you, media. <laughs> is that you or somebody? Are you tweeting? No, I am not. My 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 Twitter account is quite quiet. Um, <laughs> I have been spending most of my time well, looking at review plans. <laughs> when I post this, I'll make sure to, to ta- tag you on the Twitter there. Okay, sounds okay, good. Okay, well, I want to appreciate you. Um, thank you again. I appreciate you uh, coming on here. I know you're busy. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you around the Capitol. And hopefully we'll do another one of these either here or maybe in Anchorage later. Perfect. I appreciate you taking okay. the time to help get good information out there. Dr. Zink. And taking care of your health. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for giving me the extra steps on the the state office building yeah. fifth floor chase and look you got your flu shot before we had a pandemic I know, and I'm, I didn't get in trouble this time for doing something b- bad see and did uh, you feel okay I felt gr- the only thing it was a little bit you know for a couple of days a little swollen but no big deal yeah didn't even feel the needle going yeah look couldn't, at that couldn't believe it see and you got over your fear of getting sick from it I'll get it next year I'll only from now on though I'm going to have to request you give me the flu shot <laughs> if, if, pos- if possible okay might be uh, burdensome 
Yeah, it might be burning some. Don't let that stop you from it getting won't your stop flu me. shot. Okay. I promise. Okay. All right, folks. Um, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.